Good morning. Please keep your Bibles open. Uh, year 6 to 8 are going to head out now for Bible study with Rob and Teresa. Let's uh, pray as we come to consider this part of God's Word. Father God, we, we thank you for your Word. We ask that you give us uh, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to respond to you. Uh, with faith and with obedience. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how you respond to uh, the word history. History. I reckon it probably divides us. There's uh, some who love it and uh, there's others who, who hate it. And, and uh, some love uh, history and delving into learning about things of the past and understanding what life was like and and, uh, you know, perhaps even imagining being there and thinking about, you know, how people did things in the past. Who, who loves history here? Just give a show of hands. Hands down. Who, who thinks, oh, history? <laughs> and maybe, maybe for, for those people, it's, uh, you know, just mentioning the word kind of um, makes them think of boring classes at school. And, and uh, apologies to any history teachers here. I'm sure, that, I'm sure they're not thinking of your classes. I'm sure your classes were... Amazing, and my son actually does a subject called extreme history, which is um, is a fantastic name. Well, for me, when I was at school, uh, I was um, <laughs> some some things don't change much, do they? <laughs> I, I, well, I was I was a math science guy who uh, who liked music as well, but history was was really not my thing. Uh, the most significant thing about, uh, about history lessons for me was noticing a new girl who joined our history class <laughs> in year nine. <laughs> and the rest, as you might say, is history. <laughs> because we've been married now for 22 years. That was the most significant thing about history classes for me. <laughs> But my, my lovely wife, Jenny, um, in, c- compared to me, uh, did, she did a lot better at uh, history. And in fact, Jenny loves history. And uh, so a few years ago, I had some long service leave and we had a holiday in Europe. And the, uh, the basic formula for our itinerary was climb enough mountains to keep Jono happy. So that in between, we didn't actually climb that mountain, by the way. We went on a cog train, but it looks impressive. <laughs> we did climb some mountains. So that in between climbing mountains, we can look at lots of old stuff. (laughs) And we did, and it worked pretty well. It was a good formula. History. Well, I actually think as a culture, we have less and less time for history. We are sure we might like to dabble in it. We might like to do a bit of sightseeing. We might like to look at some old stuff now and then. But we live in the now. Today is... What matters, according to our culture, there's no point dwelling on the past or thinking about it. Just give me something for now. That's the kind of attitude of our day and age. And I think we can actually bring that attitude to to church and to the Bible and we say, look, give me something immediate and practical and directly applicable to my life now. Give me a a spiritual pill to, to pet me up. Maybe give me seven things to do this week. If that's your attitude uh, this morning, I'll just say you might struggle a bit with today's sermon on this part of God's Word. 
Uh, you might think, well, it's not really immediately practical and, and directly applicable to my life now. But if that is you, if that's where you're thinking, can I urge you to push past that? Push past our, our world's obsession with the now and take in the, the profound riches that this passage gives us because this actually gives us a, gr- a grand sweep of the biblical history the biblical history of God's plan for this world, God's dealing with this world, including his dealing with us. Uh, that, that's not immediately practical. It may not be immediate, but it does certainly shape and change our lives. It, it, it actually blesses us with, a, a, with better seeing and understanding God and, and the big picture of his extraordinary and gracious plan throughout history and, and how we sit in that. It actually grounds us. It gives us our bearings. It gives us a key truth about God and a key truth about ourselves. So look with me. I hope you've got your Bibles open. Uh, Galatians 3, when it, there's an outline there of where we're going as we continue to, to follow through this letter of Paul to the, the church in Galatia. Uh, just to remind you where we're up to the story so far, the, the Galatians had, had started well in the Christian life. They'd heard the gospel of Jesus. They'd believed. They'd started with faith in Christ. But now some false teachers were, were coming in and were, were influencing them and saying that, that to continue as Christians, you also need to keep the works of the law you need to obey the law of Moses it's the gospel of faith in Christ plus obey the law Uh, the passage last week we we saw Paul show them the foolishness of doing that and as part of the argument there he he pointed back to Abraham the great forefather of the Jews and and he pointed out that Abraham wasn't about law keeping Abraham was about faith he he believed God and so he said if anyone anyone likewise believes God well they're a true child of Abraham that's God's way right from the beginning his God's way was to bring blessing to the nations not through law keeping but through trusting trusting God just like Abraham did so that's where we're up to in the the flow of it and in today's passage it's as if Paul anticipates the response of those who are promoting the law as the way to go he expects them to say Okay, so Abraham was about faith, not law-keeping. Sure, okay. But, I mean, Abraham, he's, he's outdated. The law is more recent. The law trumps the promise to Abraham. The law is God's way, version 2.0. It's done away with the old, done away with the old way of Abraham and, and his faith. We've got the law. And so Paul anticipates that's what some uh, would respond by saying. And so he heads it off at the pass. And he firstly takes an example from everyday life. Look at verse 15. It's come up on the screen also. He says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. If you make a covenant, a contract, if you write up a will... And it's established, it's signed, sealed, delivered. It's, you, you can't set it aside. You can't add to it, he's saying. Now, maybe the analogy kind of breaks down a bit for us because you know, things are more complicated for us. We can add to or modify or replace contracts. But the, the point is clear enough. If, if a covenant has been made, if it's, if it's been locked in, you can't just sort of set it aside, discard it or, or add to it. It stands. 
And so Paul says that's how it is in the case of God's promise to Abraham. Because God made a promise to Abraham. And it wasn't just something that was, you know, for back then and, and had no relevance beyond back then. It's just, just for then. No, it, it wasn't just a promise to Abraham. Notice what it says, verse 16, next verse. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So the scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So God promised to do something. Not just in Abraham's time. He didn't just say, hey, Abraham, I'm going I'm to give you a new start, a new land, and things will go well for you. His promise was to do with his seed, his offspring, those who come after him. It was a future-looking plan and promise. Uh, to, to give examples of this, uh, Genesis 12, verse 3, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And Genesis 13, 15, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. So God made this promise to Abraham for his offspring. In one sense, it's talking about Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, inheriting the promised land of Canaan. But Paul shows that, that God's plan was, was always bigger than that. It was always bigger than just Israel in the promised land. As we saw last week, God's promise was to bring blessing to all nations through Abraham. And here he says, the promise was to Abraham and to his seed, singular, who he shows is Christ. Christ Jesus is Abraham's seed, his offspring, which is true in terms of his human ancestry. Uh, Matthew's gospel begins, the the gospel of Jesus, uh, according to Matthew, starts with his genealogy. Tracing all the way from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Judah, Perez, Hezron, Ram, Abimadad, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abahud, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Achim, Elihud, Eleazar, Mathan, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. From Abraham down through the generations to Jesus. Now, just as an aside, if it, if it kind of disturbs you that it seems there's a genetic break in the chain from Joseph to Jesus, because Jesus wasn't the biological son of Joseph, I think that's actually a a, uh, a modern hang-up and obsession that we have with genetics and biology. The, Bi- the Bible is actually more interested in relationship and family and Jesus belonged to the human family and household of Joseph. It's just, just an aside. Jesus was the offspring, the seed of Abraham. And God's promise way back in the time of Abraham was looking ahead and was eventually fulfilled in Jesus. Well then, what about the law of Moses? I mean, didn't that come after Abraham, and so therefore doesn't it supersede or improve on, on whatever came before? I mean, that's, that's how things work, isn't it? You know, we have the iPhone 7 this year, and next year or the year after there'll be the 8, the 9, the 10, and, and well, you know, they will update, they'll replace, they'll do away with the iPhone 7. That's, that'll be old, that'll be second rate. And so, in the same way, some might say, well, that's how it is with the law. 
Yeah, Abraham and his faith, that was good. But now we've got the law and it's updated. It's replaced Abraham. The law is God's new and improved way. Isn't that how it works? Some that may have said. And Paul says, no. Verse 17, what I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. The law isn't the the new and improved model of how to relate to God that somehow replaces the old Abraham model because it it can't set aside the covenant previously established by God. It was an immovable covenant. And what's more, it was a covenant about a promise of God, a promise regarding the seed of Abraham who was still to come, a promise that was still waiting to be fulfilled at the, the time of the giving of the law. You can't just do away with a promise of God and say, well, it doesn't matter. As verse 18 says, For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So then the next question to ask is, well, what's the point of the law then? And why bother? Why bother with the law? Or as verse 19 says, why then was the law given at all? I mean, if it's not the the new and improved model to replace the old, what's the point? Paul answers, continues, verse 19, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. It was added because of transgressions, sin. And this doesn't mean that um, you know, God saw that we were doing the wrong thing and thought, gee, I, I'd better, I better help them stop it. I, I know, I'll give them the rules and, and then they'll know what they're doing and they'll stop it. No, God's law doesn't fix sin. So it wasn't given because of sin in that sense. It doesn't stop us sinning. In fact, it's almost the opposite happens. The law shows up our sin. It identifies and and diagnoses and condemns and and even provokes our sin. There's a lot of parallels between the book of Romans and and Galatians. Romans is kind of the extended edition version. Uh, So Romans 3 through 7 expands on this more and uh, why the law is given. What's the point of the law? And it says in Romans 3 verse 20 that through the law we become conscious of our sin. And as when you read the law, God's law, it shows us our failure. We, we read it and we say, oh, I did that wrong. Oh, I could have done better there. Gee, I, I mucked that up too. We become conscious of our sin through the law. I think it's interesting that some people think that, um, you know, we're, we're basically good people. We're all basically good people. In fact, that, that irrational basis of um, that, underlined, that, that belief underlies much of, um, of popular thought, that people are you know, basically good people. Or if they've been Christianized, they might even say, well, look, I'm a, I'm a good person. I, I, you know, I live by the Ten Commandments, which probably means they haven't actually read the Ten Commandments, at least recently or not seriously, because when you read the Ten Commandments, read the law, what does it do? It shows up our sin. You shall have no other gods before me. I have put other things before God. Honour your father and mother. 
haven't always done that. You shall not steal. Guilty. The law doesn't give us life. The law shows us that we're sick. But even more than that, the law provokes the sin in us. It's like if you, if you go to a park and you, and on a nice day and you, you go there to have some fun and you encounter one of those signs. We call them the, the no fun signs. What do we do when we see that, that sign? I love the Mildura one, making this the most livable, people-friendly community in Australia. <laughs> but what, what do we do when we, we see these signs? Well, the sinful nature in us, unconstrained by sort of social expectations and, or negative consequences like a hefty fine, the sinful nature in us sees that sign and, and shakes its fist at it and says, who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? I'll decide, thank you very much. And even though we previously hadn't even considered doing some of the forbidden activities, now that we've seen the sign, that's exactly what I'm going to do. See, the law provokes and shows up, demonstrates our sin. So the law was added because of transgression, because of sin, to show, to show it up for what it is. But then what's this bit about um, angels and a mediator and God being one? End of verse 19 says, The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Well, uh, these are tricky verses. I'm not entirely sure, and if I... You want to come and talk to me later and set me straight? That'd be uh, that'd be great. Oh, what we do know, I have I have I'll, I'll fly up a kite here. I have a, a thought. Uh, what we do know is the law was given through angels. Um, they were involved in the giving of the law to at, at, uh, to Moses at Mount Sinai. So there's a number of places in the Bible that just mentions that. For example, in Hebrews two verse two, it says, uh, "For since the message spoken through angels was binding." Um, the law was given through angels to Moses, and, and he is the, obviously the mediator that this is speaking of. Moses is the mediator. And so verse, uh, verse 20 says, a mediator, however, implies more than one party. And so with, um, with the law, there's, there's God giving his law to, his, to the people through the angels and Moses. But then the law is, um, is a two-way thing. The law is, you must do this. And I will do that. There's, there's, it's a two-way thing. And there's, there's more than one party. But God is one, says the end of verse 20. And so I think what's going on here, there's a contrast. Uh, the contrast between the law and the promise of God to Abraham, which was, was one way. The promise of the Lord to Abraham was there's no agent, there's no mediator. It's just God saying, I will do this. And so I think Paul is, is demonstrating, he's highlighting the superiority of the promise over the law. God is one, and in his grace, his way is to speak and to give the inheritance through a promise. Which then leads to the next question that his, Paul's opponents might ask, and that is, verse 21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? I mean, if the law is so second-rate, is it actually working against the promises of God? 
Paul says, no, absolutely not. He continues, for if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. So the, the law points in the same direction towards righteousness, people being made right with God. But the reason it, it doesn't work and, and make people right with God is not because of a problem with the law. It's because of the problem of our sin. As verse 22 says, But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Scripture or the law has locked up, locked us up. It guards us. It constrains us. It holds us in our sin, showing us our need, our need for the promised Saviour who will come and will free us and release us and forgive us and make us right with God. Well, what are some implications of this for us? These words penned by Paul some nearly 2,000 years ago um, in this short letter to a church in Galatia, speaking of things that God said some 2,000 years prior to that, what they do is they give us the big picture. These eight short verses sum up, they capture the the storyline of pretty much the whole Bible, from Abraham to Moses to Christ. They show us how it all works together, how, how throughout the history of the world, God has been working out his master plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. Sometimes people think the Bible is just a kind of, you know, random collection of confusing bits and pieces and it's not. It's quite the opposite. The, the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament has this remarkable coherence, this remarkable unity. What God promised to Abraham, he confirmed to Moses, he fulfilled in Christ. And I think we, we can get, get so caught up in the, the now of our lives, and the now matters, but there's great blessing in, in stepping back and seeing God's great master plan from beginning to end. And of course, we actually need to go. We need to go a step further back. We need to, we need to go back to creation and human rebellion, and we need to look ahead to to the return of Christ and to the new creation. There's great blessing in in stepping back and seeing God's great master plan of salvation centered on Jesus Christ. That's the key truth that about God that this gives us. God is a big God with a big, gracious plan of salvation. The key truth about, uh, about us, and this gives us, is that we need the law. We need it, not, not to make us right with God, because it, it can't do that because of our sin, but we need it to show us our sin. We need that because it shows us our need for a saviour. Sometimes we can be um, we can be criticised for you know always talking about sin and judgment and it's negative and you know we shouldn't be so negative and and so sin kind of gets downplayed and glossed over and well let's just jump to Jesus and let's let's talk about him. But to do that to to skip over sin and judgment is actually to go against the plan of of God through biblical history, and it means that we we lose what it is that we're saved from. And we end up just inserting some other problem for which Jesus becomes the solution. No, we need the law 
to show us our sin. We need to see our sin clearly so that we realise just how amazing is God's grace to us in Christ. As one writer put it, I'll come up on the screen here, it is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear. And it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. The law, which shows us our sin, warns us of judgment. It's a gift. It's a gift to us. It's the the black night sky through which the gospel shines. To finish the sermon this morning, um, I'm going to ask Ben to come up and uh, he's going to sing a song for us, which he wrote. Um, we've been thinking about uh, God's great master plan of salvation through Christ and the place of the law in that and how that fits in and what that does for us. There's a song on, um, on Ben's album, Ben's album, which is called Master Plan. Who has Ben's album? Show of hands. Yep, many of you. Um, th- this really captures, this song captures really well what the, uh, God's big plan of, of salvation and what the purpose of the law is in that um, on the album in between it's, just, it's the story of the bible throughout the album in between the songs there's narration um, and before this song just after israel's been rescued from slavery in egypt the narration says this god knew they still had sin in their hearts so he did something wonderful he gave israel some special laws laws that would make them realize just how sinful they were Laws that would make them long for the day when God would rescue them from the greatest enemy of all. On a day the Lord chose for his people They were brought together in his sight And there they saw a terrifying darkness And there they heard a sound that left them trembling with fright But from upon his mountain in the desert Came the law that God had cut in stone And the word of God was given to his people His good laws and decrees no other nation had known God was teaching people for salvation Showing them his ways so they know right from wrong And his righteous law still condemn our sinful hearts So we might cling to his forgiveness The righteousness revealed in his Son Love the Lord With all that you can love him And love your neighbour as you would yourself Celebrate the day of rest he gives you And 
Only serve the Lord your God, put Him before all else. And remember all the words the Lord has spoken, words that point the way to righteousness. And they show us all that no one is deserving. The only hope of rescue is the cross of His Christ, where God is teaching people for salvation. He's showing us His way so we know right from wrong, and His righteous law still condemn our sinful hearts so we might cling to His forgiveness. The righteousness revealed in His Son. And in time, God's final word was given. Jesus Christ, the Word of God in flesh. And He came to show to us the Father and He obeyed His Father to the point of His cruel death and now His blood can rescue us from slavery to the sin God's law reveals in us and the price He paid redeemed God's chosen people and it rescues all who put their trust in Christ and His cross Where God is teaching people for salvation Showing us His way so we know right from wrong And His righteous law still condemn our sinful hearts So we might cling to His forgiveness the righteousness revealed in His Son. Two key truths to hang on to. God is bringing about His master plan through Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Secondly, the Lord doesn't provide a way for us to to be saved, but it shows us our need for a saviour. If you want a, uh, another immediately practical application, buy Ben's album. It's epic. <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, come before God and pray. Father God, we thank you for your amazing, gracious plan from beginning to end. We thank you that you spoke that word of promise, that through your Son you have given us the way of salvation. Father, we thank you for the gift of your law, not to somehow provide a way for us to earn our way back to you, but to show us our need for a saviour. Father, help us to cling to these great truths and to live trusting in you, trusting in your son as our saviour. And we ask this in his name. Amen.